This is the MLW Radio Network. What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? It's your boy, Blackheart, the head honcho off the Top Roast Podcast. If you love independent and professional wrestling and like all the juicy gossip of the wrestling industry, then look no further than here, OTTR Headquarters. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitch, and Facebook groups, and whatever that you get your podcast from with our, with our latest Last Week of Wrestling, After Darts, Under Boss's Hard Taste, and now a new upcoming trivia game show, Wrestling Every, coming soon. So if you like what you've seen, you love professional wrestling, you love independent wrestling, you love everything about wrestling just yourself, give us a tune. You know, you would not regret it. Blackheart out. Everyone knows a lot of things can change in the span of 10 years. But when it comes to professional wrestling podcasting, one thing is still guaranteed. The Shining Wizards is the only place to get all the latest wrestling news, interviews with the greatest guests, and of course, tons of laughs in discussing the world of wrestling. The show is still available on Monday nights at 7 p.m. East on RantDMRadio.com and Rant Entertainment Media on the TuneIn app. And it's still available on all podcasting platforms. To check us out, head over to ShiningWizards.com where it's still wrestling talk and talk about wrestling. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. My name is Thomas, and what's your name? Uh, I'm Alan. Alan. Oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. We're brothers. That's right. Yeah, yeah the mother, same mother and father. Your room was. Oh, we shared a room. Shared a room. For we right? shared a room. I thought I knew your face. Yeah, we go we? way back, mate. Yeah. yeah, we should do a podcast then. Uh, we have. We do. We do a podcast. We do a podcast. What's it called? The Broadcast. Yeah, that was planned. Yeah, yeah. Well, what do we do? Well, we cover all different things in the world of pop culture. We're talking about comic books, we're talking about professional wrestling, and we're talking about movies. Go back and watch classic retro wrestling events, the likes of WWE, WCW, and if you do like that, you can check us out on Apple iTunes, also on Podbean, Anchor, and on Podknife. Also check us out on Twitter, at The Broadcast. That's B-R-O. Okay, yeah, yeah. Hey, the ending. Hey, it's all right. Good on you. Yeah. Instagram also at the Broadcast Podcast. Remember, we don't spell it with a C. We spell it with a K. Sorry, mate. Take it easy. Welcome to another episode of Overbooked. My name is Mike Freeland. Overbooked is brought to you by the MLW Radio Network and the Front Row Material brand. As many of you guys know, we are reading the Sabu book, and we are in Chapter 10. Now, as I previously mentioned, Chapter 10 is a fairly lengthy chapter. I believe it's somewhere in the ballpark of about 58 pages, which is one of the longest chapters in the book. So we're going to choose to break this down. So the last part that we left you at, we were talking uh, about the interpromotional uh, workings of ECW and the WWF at the time. Now we're going to move on to another chapter, another section of this chapter, I should say, which is uh, talking about the No Ropes barbed wire match with Terry Funk. So if you're following along in your book, I'm not really sure what page this is, but if you're following along with Kindle, we are on page 243. Let's go ahead and let's start. Recently, the play-by-play voice of ECW, Joey Styles, was a guest on Stone Cold Steve Austin's podcast. When Steve shifted gears to get some good ECW memories out of Styles, he asked him, Since you probably saw a bunch of fucked up shit during your play-by-play days in ECW, what was the most fucked up shit you ever saw? Now, without hesitation, Styles immediately said, Sabu versus Terry Funk in a barbed wire match for the ECW world title. One of the most memorable matches in ECW was a barbed wire match with Terry Funk at ECW's Born to be Wired. Now, that happened on August the 9th in 1997. The match was even promised fans that it was going to be too extreme for ECW. 
because WWF was dabbling in some hardcore type of matches now on their own, Paul wanted to bring a little of the FMW craziness to America and to really put the promotion over the top. Now back in 1993, I held the ECW world title for a short period of time after beating Shane Douglas. Now four years later, Terry Funk was now on the opposite side of the ring putting that same strap up for grabs in his barbed wire. Terry was great. He was always up for anything. Being a wrestler who was in his prime, he didn't always understand the names of all the new moves or much less how to do or take some of the moves. However, all you have to do is slow down and be really repetitive and descriptive with Terry, and the Funker would be in on it. ECW was in rare breed. You couldn't fool them. No, not at all. Trying to take care of hardcore fans is kind of difficult at times. Wrestling fans have a taste of Japan, then they realize what we were trying to do, and you're not really able to fake that. Some of the actual barbed wire people ask me all the time if it was gimmicked up. The answer is no, emphatically. We didn't want to risk our credibility. The ECW crew didn't clip the sharp ends of the barbed wires off either. We also didn't use special Hollywood rubber barbed wire, which is often used in props. Now, something else that was so real too. A really crazy 53-year-old man wanting to whoop my ass on the other side of the ring in front of bloodthirsty crowds at the ECW arena in South Philadelphia. I had to kick Terry's ass so hard just to beat him. He started giving me a generous pile driver that somehow didn't kill me. When he started wiping me with the mat, there was a disturbing lack of ropes that I could reach out to. I could feel the barbed wire and then things started to drop. Everything did. First, the top rope dropped. It was barbed wire everywhere. After that, Terry hit me with a barbed wire for the first time. This went back and forth until I locked Funk up and I tangled his shirt in the wire for destroying a perfectly good pair of my MC hammer pants. After a few steel chair shots to my head, air sabu, which is always a running jump into a chair and then springboard onto my opponent into the corner. At this point, we were already a bloody mess. When I tried to do it again, I overshot and just jumped a little tiny bit too far into a section filled with wire. It filleted my arm like a catfish. Joey Styles was legitimately grossed out. He told me later that his stomach dropped as he yelled, oh my god, Sabu's bicep just got ripped open. Disgusting. Now it may have looked bad to some, and some because it really was. Fonzie, I yelled to my manager. His eyes looked at mine, then down to my arm, and then his eyes bugged out of his head. Go get some tape. He snapped to it. The former WWF referee disappeared down the aisle. I looked down at my arm. There was this big skin flap where my bicep was supposed to be. It looked like it was shark grill. It was huge, thick, corn syrup-like snots that were dripping out of my elbow onto the mat. The referee leaned over to me and said, you okay? Do we stop it? I yelled, fuck no. Some stopping the bleeding would be great, but stopping the match, well, that was completely out of the question. I can't really describe it. If you're a real professional wrestler, you continue no matter what. You don't think about what kind of long-term repercussions something may have. The show comes first. You fuel yourself with the least bit of adrenaline you have left in your body just to power through it. My forearm was tingling. It felt hot and then it felt cold around the wound at the very same time, and it was very heavy. Canvas quickly looked like a butcher's blood floor. Sabu! Thank God for Fonzie. He knew what the deal was. He went right back to the back and returned with some fresh tape as fast as he could, frantically wrapping duct tape around my severed arm. I was helped off the mat and back to my feet with some southern gentlemanly comfort from Fonzie. I was able to dump a steel chair, courtesy of the Funkster who was trying to still break my neck, relentlessly to say the fucking least. I was still wrapped, wrapping my 
arm. Funk was doing moves on me. As I hit the mat, I was wrapping the tape around myself, and then we started whipping the dog shit out of each other with just strands of barbed wire, which incidentally felt like fish hooks onto my skin. I had about enough of this, and I started thinking about taking it home. I wrapped up Terry for a bit, and... I started wrapping the barbed wire around him. Then, I would put him on a wooden table around ringside. And what we had planned was, I would hit him with a running leg drop from the ring apron through the table. I threw Terry's dead ass back into the ring for the pin. Then the crazy motherfucker decides to rib me, and he kicks out. Fuck! I said laughing. Okay, you asshole. I dragged Funk back out of the ring and put him on another wooden table and I did it again. He looked up at me and laughed as I was cursing under my breath. Then I ran to the other side of the ring and looked for a strand of wire I could wrap around my leg. There was only a massive tangled net that was on the floor of what had once been part of the ropes. Fuck it, I said. I pulled the whole thing back off the mat. I bent it around my ass and what was left of my sweet hammer pants. The result looked kind of like a hula skirt of barbed wire, which was good enough for me. I hit the Funker with a barbed wire leg drop through the table. He was still covered in barbed wire himself like a cocoon. Then, it was all barbed wire bondage. We were totally tangled up in this menacing mesh metal, and we both could barely move. I threw Terry back in the ring, and he kicked out again like the asshole he was. But then, the gnarly net got so bad, we were stuck together like Siamese twins, and there was nothing separating us. Now imagine that. Bondage with Terry Funk. Other than a rat, who would you have ever thought it would be with? I pinned him again, and finally that was it. Finally, I'd won the first ever heavyweight championship, the ECW heavyweight title. The loops of barbed wire were so imprisoning that we couldn't get out if we wanted to. The ref couldn't even raise my hand if he wanted to because that we were both pinned to the mat inside this big ball of barbed wire and neither one of us could even attempt to stand up. My pants were ripped entirely open at this point and lifting up my leg, I got stuck again. It looked like I wasn't even wearing pants at this point. I was lifting up a blanket of torn cloth to give everyone a front row show, but I couldn't help it. Fonzie came to the ring with wire clippers and he started to go to work. The sharp barbs ripped at his shirt too until it was gone. After that, it finally ended with more ring attendants having to literally pull us apart with scissors, metal cutters, and jaws of life, or whatever the damn things that they could find to desperately get us untangled. Soon after that match in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, was Hardcore Heaven 97, our second ever pay-per-view. I lost the ECW Heavyweight Championship to St. Douglas in a three-way with Terry Funk, but it didn't matter. The match is still one I remember to this day. Ever since I came back to ECW, Taz wanted to work with me. He had always been competitive, and I had heard that he had talked some shit about me about being selfish when I was leaving the promotion the last time. So when Taz requested that we work together, I was actually requesting to leave to work for New Japan in a shoot style, and I was going to work on a program. And I said, no, no way. In typical old stole promoter fashion, Paul loved the idea and he decided to get some work between he and I behind the scenes. He wanted to get some heat into a realistic storyline that everyone would buy. Now, you've seen it before, like in the famous Shawn Michaels Bret Hart booking. Since Paul knew he could eventually convince me to do it somewhere down the road, he gave Taz the green light to continuously call me out with no plans for a payoff and egg on me during the whole time. Once again, I was planning to go back to Japan. Taz wanted to work. Paul looked for money. What made this angle look so real was, it was real. Taz was speaking from the heart, well, somewhat. He made the argument that I left a major match on the table to go to New Japan. I was selling out to the fans and being selfish because that match was a tag team match where he and I were supposed to be partners. Yeah, and it was all true, but fuck him. 
You know what? When he started his first class, I would just listen to his shit behind the curtain and I just shook my head. He became obsessed with the idea. He went on and on burying me. But I didn't give a shit. I didn't care what he was saying. After weeks and weeks of that horse shit, I wouldn't even bother me. I wouldn't even come out of the dressing room to hear it anymore. It's just a big pile of shit. He can call me all he wants. It's not going to work. Well, anyhow, it took me three months of that bullshit before Paul Heyman finally talked me into working it. What happened was, I just gave up. And I finally said, fine, I'll do something with him. So I agreed. We decided to build it up for forever to really do it right. Well, this was actually good because in the meantime, it was a moment for me to create some anticipation with the fans. It also meant that I didn't have to interact with him either. On Taz's part, the shoot idea was actually pretty smart. Fans brought into the realism of what he had to say. As a result, this angle actually made him what he finally became. Originally, he was a shitty cartoony character. He looked like welfare Captain Caveman. But with all his shit talking, he became more confident and developed a much more pissed off non-character persona. He went from being Taz, the Fred Flintstone meme, to Taz, the human suplex machine. My former tag team partner, the Tasmaniac, had shortened his name just to Taz now while I was gone in Japan. It made perfect sense to shorten his long name because his short ass was only about three apples high to begin with. The new short-tempered Taz continued to publicly challenge me every chance he got. Any time he saw me coming out, he would address it. After a year of call-outs and insults from Taz, we set up this big grudge match at ECW's pay-per-view Barely Legal in April of 97. From this super grudge match against Taz, it was the first time we had worked together ever since my debut in ECW. Both of us had grown significantly since then. We were both more skilled, more experienced, and better performers overall. There was no long build-up like does today in wrestling. The timing was just right, and the match finally happened, and Kevin Sullivan said in an interview in his book, in my opinion, if they had waited even a little bit longer, it would have been too long and nobody would have cared. Now that's patience, and that shows the genius that Paul is. And trust me, it was epic. In the end, Taz locked his Taz mission on me for the win. The Taz mission was something Taz created to look tougher. All in all, it was essentially a chokehold, which would have been an illegal move in the WWF or WCW, and even in New Japan, but not in ECW. That's why it was so perfect for the promotion and Taz. Now in hindsight, Taz and Paul were right. The crowd was extremely hot for the match. In a day and age where the WWF completely blew off storylines from pay-per-views. This led to something really cool. Cool storytelling and character development. Keeping our hands off each other for a full year was unheard of in the world of wrestling. The fans couldn't wait to see it, and this fueled our match even more. After the big match, I joined Rob Van Dam in an alliance with Bill Alfonso. Taz and I, however, continued to work with each other for the rest of our time in ECW. He became a great foil for me. When Shane was out on injury and he couldn't defend, Paul and Taz defended the custom FTW championship belt. Eventually, he dropped that same belt to me. Taz was funny with promos though. For someone who sure could give it, he sure didn't act like it. After taking a hit with me and all that bullshit on the mic all year, he would sometimes take stuff personally when Robert Fonzie or I would talk about him in promos. The rule of thumb in ECW on the mic was always, anything goes. All is fair in the ring. If anyone argued about in-ring work on the mics, he would have to call me out. Or worse, in the moment I called him a short, fat, lazy man, he would then lose his shit and you would hear about it in the locker room. So we had to be careful on creative on how to dismiss all the things that we said in the interviews. Besides that, you really have to give Taz Hughes props for how much he was accomplished. Taz had grew and grew. After ECW, he went to New York and crushed it as a commentator in WWE, later in TNA, then he parlayed that into an experienced radio show for CBS. He really was a perfect foil for me, and I'm happy to have the fans call one of the best feuds ever with him, because it was FTW, Taz. 
New Jack was another crazy fucking bastard that was running around in ECW. I remember one time New Jack was coming into the venue and there was this big line there. One of the fans said something questionable to Jack and he seemingly shrugged it off but he didn't forget. Maybe about a half hour later, Jack went out and found the guy who had some choice words for one half of the gangsters. He pretended to forget who the fan was and acted like he had found a random fan to come into the locker room for a spot. To show how devious Jack was, he was actually working the fan the whole time in secret though. He was just pretending to befriend the guy to mess with him because he suspected him of being a racist. This particular venue had a section blocked off for a hand cam and some fraud operations for the production crew where they were working. And that was about it. Jack brought the fan up to the area to talk to him. Hey my man, Jack said patting the fan on the back of his Metallica t-shirt. I want you to sit up there in the VIP section, and I'm going to work you into a spot on the show. Really, the fan said? Does that work for you, Jack said? Sure, thanks. Well, what what do you need me to do, New Jack? Just sit up there, and then come up when I tell you. How's that sound? Sounds good. The gullible fan took the bait, and all the while, New Jack was rubbing his hands together, and his, in his mind, he was going to be doing something maniacal, something very evil. Today, more than ever before, fans like to be a part of the show. They long for signs and love starting ridiculous chants. Being involved in a wrestling spot would really be a treat for many fans. Now, when the Time family came, it was a match with me. New Jack went right over to where the alleged racist fan was and he attempted to knock the guy off the balcony. The fan held on for dear life. I had to actually pull Jack off of him from bumping the fan off the highest point on the balcony. New Jack throttled the kid and chased him down the stairs. He caught him and beat him up backstage during the match just for no reason. Trying to help the poor guy out, I rushed up to catch up to them. Then I saw the kid go flying down some stairs and do a big belly flop onto the cement. New Jack was kicking and punching, and punching him all the way through the cheap seats to the back of the arena, and then finally out the back door. Everyone throughout the entire fans was a part of the show, a part of that big elaborate work spot. But it wasn't. Jack was a heat-seeking missile. I remember one time Tracy Smothers came into the locker room and was looking for him desperately. I had no idea what he was looking for him for. So I asked, hey Tracy, what's up? I want to get New Jack, he said, but I need your hands. Hands? Yeah. Can you grab me that bag over there? Okay, I said. I stepped out of the locker room over by the bench and I picked something up. Then I walked back over to Tracy and I handed it to him. Here you go. I tried and he refused it. I tried again. He kind of pushed it on my chest. Can you hold it right here? You hold it. I'm going to go get Jack and then I need you to hand it to me when he comes around the corner. I shrugged. Why the bag? I'll be right back, Tracy said. As I was waiting there, not knowing even what I was waiting for, I got suspicious and I looked in the bag. Oh shit, he has a gun in there. No way. The most famous memory of many New Jack being a crazy bastard took place on November 23rd in 96 in Revere, Massachusetts. The gangsters were booked against Devon Dudley and Axel Rotten, but Axel never made the show because something happened to his grandmother. Rotten was replaced by a local kid named Eric Kulas. He was also known at the time as Mass Transit. Apparently Kulas was untrained. He was also a fast talker. He found his way to sneak into the business. First off, he told Paul Heyman that he was 23. In reality, he was only 17. He also convinced the ECW booker at the time that he'd been trained by Killer Kowalski, when the only real experience he had was jumping around doing pile drivers on a friend's trampoline in the backyard. Being the mark he was, Kulas requested that New Jack blade him during the match. I guess he felt honored by the 
experience, but when the match finally came, he got in return, which was more than just blading. He got a lobotomy. When the color spot came along, it was quite possible New Jack was sensing that the kid honestly was just full of shit. He wasn't really trained. He knew that. All the stories about being 23, that this wasn't accurate. New Jack, sensing this kid was full of it, decided to take some liberties on the kid to teach him a lesson, if that was in fact. Not intentional either way, but whether or not, cause excessive bleeding. Blood was everywhere. It looked like someone had just cleaned a deer in the ring. Immediately following the match, Kulas was hospitalized. He needed 50 stitches to stop the bleeding. The next day, Dujak picked was picked up by the police and charged with aggravated assault. Eventually, he was acquitted, claiming the incident was an unfortunate accident. Later in July of 1998, Kulas tried to sue Jack and ECW, but he lost the case. Eric Kulas passed away on May 12th of 2002. He was only 22. It had something to do with the injury to his forehead, some people thought. The reality was it had nothing to do with that. Eric ended up succumbing to complications from gastric bypass surgery. Later on, Kulas' parents tried to sue Jack again, unsuccessfully. They argued that their son's death was caused to a severe case of depression and that suffered plus a major eating disorder and both came immediately after what New Jack had done to him. Let's talk about Chris Candido. My good friend Chris Candido passed away in 2005. Chris made appearances all over the world with major wrestling promotions such as ECW, New Japan, TNA, Smoky Mountain Wrestling, and ECW. He was most widely known for the time he spent in the WWF as Skip, one half of the tag team of the Body Donnas. For most of his career, however, he was right alongside his real-life partner, Tammy Sonny Sitch. She was his high school sweetheart, whom he married, and we'd go on to portray as his manager in the ring. When I first met Candido, he was still in the Memphis territory. He was brand new. But he'd already begun getting around the business. Candido was the grandson of Popeye Chuck Richards, who was a wrestler for Vince McMahon Sr. in the WWWF which was the worldwide wrestling. At 14 years old, he had trained at Larry Sharp's Monster Factory and then started working for Sharp's World Wrestling Association. Chris started doing jobs for that promotion, including collecting the ring gear during the shows and driving vets like Moondog to the airport. Larry even had him wrestle some small spots on some of his other shows. At the Memphis shows, to where I first met Chris, he came in for a few weeks with Eric Embry, who was booking the time when Jerry Lawler had his full-fledged friends coming in. Chris was still learning his way, so Eric had him wrestle as a babyface, which made sense on paper because of his look. He was a clean-cut, good-looking kid. That always, always worked out for him. Chris Candido was really a natural heel. On a few shows, Chris stayed in our hotel room, which was jam-packed with Rob, Dredd, me, and somebody else. We would often take the mattress off in the box springs and spread everything out so everyone had a place to crash and they didn't have to be on the bare floor. I remember one night before a show, I was just starting to do some of my Middle Eastern gimmick. I didn't have any pants yet. I had gone shopping at the thrift store and found some pretty silky pregnancy pants in the woman's section that had a nice stretchy waistband. To get the genie pants look, I pushed the legs up halfway through my calf and then duct taped them right there. Riding higher on my ankles, it gave that illusion I wanted. After pulling some of the slack down in the free, the pants looked perfect. Chris walked over and saw me checking out my legs in the mirror. What do you think? I asked him as I looked at my reflection. Ah, very sexy, Chris said. Where do you get those? Salvation Army, maternity section. Chris nodded. He was laughing his ass off. He thought that that was a riot. Chris also thought it was funny that a skinny guy like me was bossing around a giant guy like Judge Dredd who had just was enormous compared to me. The reason for this was my uncle and I still were kind of training him and Dredd was still doing all kinds of green stuff that pissed me off from time to time and sometimes Dredd needed to be corrected. Soon after the Memphis tour, I got booked on my first FMW tour 
by actually default. Onita asked my uncle if he knew anyone who looked like Kevin Sullivan who could fill in for Kevin. We suggested Chris, and that is how Onita ended up bringing Chris in too. Hey Chris, do you have a passport? No, he said on the other side of the phone. Well, you better get one. I got you booked in Japan. Hello? Chris? Chris was absolutely psyched out to go to Japan. It was absolutely helped kickstart his career, as it did for me. Chris was really new, but he had no idea what happened over there. He had had the American look that the people in Japan loved. On his very first show, he was nervous as hell. We got to the building and Chris was already ahead of me. He was standing, staring at the paper on the wall and looking at the card in disbelief. He was right there at the top. They'd be throwing him right into the main event of the FMW owner himself, Onita. He was really nervous and he was going to be working in a street fight. My uncle came, came over to unnerve him. Toughen up, he said. Don't let that sweat you. Chris looked at my uncle for a minute, then back to the card. A street fight? In Japan? Look, there's nothing to worry about, he said. This one will basically be very easy. It's with Onita. My uncle was right. When the match finally came off, Chris and Onita pretty much just ran around the arena holding each other's heads and pushing each other into objects. Onita was also interested in having Candida's face painted for the entire tour, which is also something that hadn't been done before. I think he wanted this done probably to make the fans think that he couldn't easily tell that it wasn't Kevin Sullivan, but they already knew. Now, I'm not really sure what the whole deal was, but some nights we painted a lightning bolt on Chris's face, and other nights, just whatever we could think of. One time, it was just a big old drawing, a fake razor painted across him, or a Batman symbol on him. As I said before, it was our first tour, and I got big scars big scars. I was able to wrestle in a few barbed wire matches and we just ran out there and we had razors with us and we all got color. Chris was rooming with me and somehow managed to get a really long blade off the hotel's maid service. So I ended up having to use that. I was using that a lot, chopping it up into small little pieces to make mi minor blades. I was also worried during the match that it was going to cut me. But then sometimes I didn't think it would cut me. So I pushed it extra hard. And although I thought I was cutting, actually I cut a little too deep. Sometimes when you cut a little too deep, that does not heal very well. Backstage, I was bleeding like a stuck pig, but I still had to do a run-in, so I just taped up the bleeding. Disgusting, Chris said. There's all kinds of white shit that's falling out of it. I turned out to wipe some of it. Yep, and he ran away from me. Ooh, get that stuff away from me. Just before my run-in, I pulled the tape off the big gash, and you could see the blood wrap around me. Yep, it was there. So I still had to perform, though. I took a bump with Horace Hogan and that I went to the back. Chris, however, saw me, a bloody mess, coming at him, and Chris started running again. He ran away as fast as he could until I caught up with him, back behind the curtain. Now that didn't stop his running. I continued to chase him down the hall, and then he locked himself into a dressing room. The biggest, deepest wound on my chest was a mess. I squirted glue on it and then taped it back together and went back to the hotel later that night with Chris. When I got out of the shower, he heard me screaming. He came running as I was asking, as I was taking the tape off of it. Dude, leave the tape on, and he said, it looked like it was styrofoam shit falling out of your body. He helped me push the styrofoam stuff back into my body, and we put fresh tape on. It seemed to work for a few minutes later. I was calling for his help again. There was no way I could tape up this big wound on my back. Can you uh, put some tape on my back real quick, I asked. I dropped my towel to the floor. Ah, he said. Uh, sure. Chris grimaced. There was now blood virtually everywhere. It looked like a fucking Hellraiser. I pointed to the small part on my back, and I told him, Yep, it's right above the crack of my ass. Oh man. He squinted, looking at the horror show. What the fuck is this? 
You know, I started laughing, not knowing if he was responding to the blood or the crack in my ass or both. Can you just put a little line of glue on both sides, then run the tape over it? Oh, all right, he said. He wiped the cut again with a paper towel, and then he went ahead and did it. How does it look, I asked. Your ass of the cut, he said. At this point, we were both laughing. Well, he said, if you mean the cut, I think I can see the top of your kidneys just under the blood. Chris was the best. It was so funny, though, because the same little guy who was working with me in the match was now doing this. Chris was the one who performed medical procedures. It was the same guy we were at the sink where we were preparing our meals. The next morning, we would put hot water on the full blast just to warm up our denty more stew. Injuries and Chris went hand in hand. Now another time with Chris, we were in Revere on the dog track near Boston. It was RVD and myself versus Chris Candido and Lance Storm. Towards the end of the match, we went for the finish, but it was our rolling thunder somersault splash from Rob and a slingshot leg drop into the ring from me at the same time. However, on the way to the ring to hit my part of the move, my toe got caught on the rope. Now normally this wouldn't have been all that bad. I might have landed on his head, which would have been kind of funny because, well, he was kind of used to it. But in this case, I undershot the move and my boot grazed the side of his head. Problem with that was, that's where I had my spike. It was in my laces of my boot and the spike hit him perfectly in the ear. His ear exploded. There was blood everywhere. Chris did the Terry Funk flop, bugging his whole body around like a fish out of water. Tammy's face bobbed up and down around along the track. Her eyes were bucking out of her head as well. Lance Storm, a.k.a. Mr. Personality, bent over and asked, What's wrong? Oh, nothing, Lance, Chris replied. I just think my ear has fallen off my head. When Chris got to the back, a number of guys with EMTs printed on their shirts surrounded him. Before I could even say I'm sorry, Balls Mahoney came running out of nowhere. He had fresh juice still pouring out of his own head from his match. That's because... He was already drinking beer to replenish all of his fluids he had lost. He grabbed a few of the EMTs and started throwing them off of Chris, thinking the EMTs were fake fans wearing shirts. Get away from my friend, he said. God, he sounded like Frankenstein. That's going to do it for part two of chapter 11. We come back and do part three. We're going to be talking about Raven. Guys, if you're enjoying Overbooked, by all means, go ahead and tag somebody on social media. Let them know that you enjoy this. Also, let them know that we have other programming as well, such as the Front Row Material brand, where I conduct interviews with wrestling stars from all over the world, and the Daily Podcast, which is called Headlines, which gives you an update of everything that's happening in the world of professional wrestling from all the various promotions. You can find all these programs anywhere you find your podcasts, and they are all free. With that being said, my name is Mike Freeland, and I will catch you on the next episode of Overbooked. The world of NLW Radio never stops.